You are listening to LearnOutLoud.com's production of Spiritual Classics. Collecting key excerpts from a wide range of religious traditions throughout human history, this podcast is dedicated to showcasing the core teachings of the world's greatest spiritual thinkers. For a complete listing of all the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit us at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Bhagavad Gita, According to Gandhi Translated into Gujarati, along with commentary by Mohandas K. Gandhi. Translated into English by Mahadev Desai. Introduction by Mohandas K. Gandhi. 1. Just as acted upon by the affection of co-workers like Swami Anand and others, I wrote my experiments with truth. So has it been regarding my rendering of the Gita. We shall be able to appreciate your meaning of the message of the Gita, only when we are able to study a translation of the whole text by yourself, with the addition of such notes as you may deem necessary. I do not think it is just on your part to deduce ahimsa, etc., from stray verses. Thus spoke Swami Anand to me during the non-cooperation days. I felt the force of his remarks. I therefore told him that I would adopt his suggestion when I got the time. Shortly afterwards, I was imprisoned. During my incarceration, I was able to study the Gita more fully, I went reverently through the Gujarati translation of the Lokamanya's great work. He kindly presented me with a Marathi original and the translations in the Gujarati and Hindi, and had asked me if I could not tackle the original, at least go through the Gujarati translation. I had not been able to follow the advice outside the prison walls, but when I was imprisoned I read the Gujarati translation. This reading whetted my appetite for more, and I glanced through several works on the Gita. My first acquaintance with the Gita began in 1888-89 through with the verse translation by Sir Edwin Arnold known as the Song Celestial. On reading it, I felt a keen desire to read a Gujarati translation, and I read as many translations as I could lay hold of. But all such reading can give me no passport for presenting my own translation. Then again, my knowledge of Sanskrit is limited. My knowledge of Gujarati, too, is in no way scholarly. How could I then dare present the public with my translation? It has been my endeavor, as also that of some companions, to reduce to practice the teaching of the Gita as I have understood it. The Gita has become for us a spiritual reference book. I am aware that we ever fail to act in perfect accord with the teaching. The failure is not due to want of effort, but is in spite of it. Even though the failures, we seem to see rays of hope. The accompanying rendering contains the meaning of the Gita's message, which this little band is trying to enforce in its daily conduct. Again, this rendering is designed for women, the commercial class, the so-called shudras, and the like who have little or no literary equipment, who have neither the time nor the desire to read the Gita in the original, and yet who stand in need of its support. In spite of my Gujarati being unscholarly, I must own to having the desire to leave to the Gujaratis through the mother tongue whatever knowledge I may possess. I do indeed wish that at a time when literary output of a questionable character is pouring upon the Gujaratis, they should have before them a rendering the majority can understand of a book that is regarded as unrivaled for its spiritual merit and so withstand the overwhelming flood of unclean literature. This desire does not mean any disrespect to the other renderings. They have their own place. But I am not aware of the claim made by the translators of enforcing their meaning of the Gita in their own lives. At the back of my reading, 
there is the claim of an endeavor to enforce the meaning in my own conduct for an unbroken period of forty years. For this reason I do indeed harbor the wish that all the Gujarati men or women wishing to shape their conduct according to their faith should digest and derive strength from the translation here presented. My co-workers too have worked at this translation. My knowledge of Sanskrit being very limited, I should not have full confidence in my literal translation. To that extent, therefore, the translation has passed before the eyes of Vinoba, Kakakelakar, Mahadev Desai, and Kishorlal Mashurwala. 2. Now about the message of the Gita. Even in 1888 and 89, when I first became acquainted with the Gita, I felt that it was not a historical work, but that under the guise of physical warfare, it described the duel that perpetually went on in the hearts of mankind, and that physical warfare was brought in merely to make the description of the internal duel more alluring. This preliminary intuition became more confirmed on a closer study of religion in the Gita. The study of the Mahabharata gave it an added confirmation. I do not regard the Mahabharata as a historical work in the accepted sense. The Adi Parva contains powerful evidence in support of my opinion. By ascribing to the chief actors superhuman or subhuman origins, the great Vyasa made short work of the history of kings and their peoples. The persons therein described may be historical, but the author of the Mahabharata has used them merely to drive home his religious theme. The author of the Mahabharata has not established the necessity of physical warfare. On the contrary, he has proved its futility. He has made the victors shed tears of sorrow and repentance and has left them nothing but a legacy of miseries. In this great work, the Gita is the crown. Its second chapter, instead of teaching the rules of physical warfare, tells us how a perfected man is to be known. In the characteristics of the perfected man of the Gita, I do not see any to correspond to physical warfare. Its whole design is inconsistent with the rules of conduct governing the relations between warring parties. Krishna of the Gita is perfection and right knowledge personified, but the picture is imaginary. That does not mean that Krishna, the adored of his people, never lived, but perfection is imagined. The idea of a perfect incarnation is an aftergrowth. In Hinduism, incarnation is ascribed to one who has performed some extraordinary service of mankind. All embodied life is in reality an incarnation of God, but it is not usual to consider every living being an incarnation. Future generations pay this homage to one who, in his own generation, has been extraordinarily religious in his conduct. I can see nothing wrong in this procedure. It takes nothing from God's greatness, and there is no violence done to truth. There is an Urdu saying which means, Adam is not God, but he is a spark of the divine. And therefore, he who is the most religiously behaved has the most of the divine spark in him. It is in accordance with this train of thought that Krishna enjoys in Hinduism the status of the most perfect incarnation. This belief in incarnation is a testimony of man's lofty spiritual ambition. Man is not at peace with himself till he has become like unto God. The endeavor to reach this state is the supreme, the only ambition worth having, and this is self-realization. This self-realization is the subject of the Gita, as it is of all scriptures, but its author surely did not write it to establish that doctrine. The object of the Gita appears to me to be that of showing the most excellent way to attain self-realization. That which is to be found, more or less clearly, 
spread out here and there in the Hindu religious books, has been brought out in the clearest possible language in the Gita, even at the risk of repetition. That matchless remedy is renunciation of fruits of action. This is the center round which the Gita is woven. This renunciation is the central sun round which devotion, knowledge, and the rest revolve like planets. The body has been likened to a prison. There must be action where there is body. Not one embodied being is exempted from labor, and yet all religions proclaim that it is possible for man, by treating the body as a temple of God, to attain freedom. Every action is tainted, be it ever so trivial. How can the body be made the temple of God? In other words, how can one be free from action, i.e., from the taint of sin? The Gita has answered the question in decisive language. By desireless action, by renouncing fruits of action, by dedicating all activities to God, i.e., by surrendering oneself to Him, body and soul. But desirelessness or renunciation does not come for the mere talking about it. It is not attained by intellectual feet. It is attainable only by a constant heart churn. Right knowledge is necessary for attaining renunciation. Learned men possess knowledge of a kind. They may recite the Vedas from memory, yet they may be steeped in self-indulgence. In order that knowledge may not run riot, the author of the Gita has insisted on devotion accompanying it, and has given it first place. Knowledge without devotion would be like a misfire. Therefore, says the Gita, have devotion, and knowledge will follow. This devotion is not merely lip worship, it is a wrestling with death. Hence, the Gita's assessment of the devotee's quality is similar to that of the sage. Thus the devotion required by the Gita is no soft-hearted effulsiveness. It certainly is not blind faith. The devotion of the Gita has the least to do with the externals. A devotee may use, if he likes, rosaries, forehead marks, make offerings, but these things are no test of his devotion. He is the devotee who is jealous of none, who is a font of mercy, who is without egotism, who is selfless, who treats alike cold and heat, happiness and misery, who is ever forgiving, who is always contented, whose resolutions are firm, who has dedicated mind and soul to God, who causes no dread, who is not afraid of others, who is free from exaltation, sorrow, and fear, who is pure, who is versed in action and yet remains unaffected by it, who renounces all fruit, good or bad, who treats friend and foe alike, who is untouched by respect or disrespect, who is not puffed up by praise, who does not go under when people speak ill of him, who loves silence and solitude, who has a disciplined reason. Such devotion is inconsistent with the existence at the same time of strong attachments. We thus see that to be a real devotee is to realize oneself. Self-realization is not something apart. One rupee can purchase for us poison or nectar, but knowledge or devotion cannot buy us salvation or bondage. These are not media of exchange. They are themselves the thing we want. In other words, if the means to the end are not identical, they are almost so. The extreme of means is salvation. Salvation of the Gita is perfect peace. But such knowledge and devotion to be true have to stand the test of renunciation of fruits of action. Mere knowledge of right and wrong will not make one fit for salvation. According to common notions, a mere learned man will pass as a pandit. He need not perform any service. He will regard as bondage even to lift a little loda. Where one test of knowledge is non-liability for service, there is no room for such mundane work as lifting of a loda. 
Or take bhakti. The popular notion of bhakti is soft-heartedness, telling beads and the like, and disdaining to do even a loving service, lest the telling of beads, etc., might be interrupted. This bhakti, therefore, leaves the rosary only for eating, drinking, and the like, never for grinding corn or nursing patients. But the Gita says, no one has attained his goal without action. Even men like Janaka attain salvation through action. If even I were lazily to cease working, the world would not perish. How much more necessary then for the people at large to engage in action? While on the one hand it is beyond dispute that all action binds, on the other hand it is equally true that all living beings have to do some work, whether they will or no. Here all activity, whether mental or physical, is to be included in the term action. Then how is one to be free from the bondage of action, even though he may be acting? The manner in which the Gita has solved the problem is, to my knowledge, unique. The Gita says, Do your allotted work, but renounce its fruit. Be detached and work. Have no desire for reward and work. This is the unmistakable teaching of the Gita. He who gives up action falls. He who gives up only the reward rises. But the renunciation of fruit in no way means indifference to the result. In regard to every action, one must know the result that is expected to follow, the means thereto, and the capacity for it. He who, being thus equipped, is without desire for the result and is yet wholly engrossed in the due fulfillment of the task before him is said to have renounced the fruit of his action. Again, let no one consider renunciation to mean want of fruit for the renouncer. The Gita reading does not warrant such a meaning. Renunciation means absence of hankering after fruit. As a matter of fact, he who renounces reaps a thousandfold. The renunciation of the Gita is the acid test of faith. He who is ever brooding over a result often loses nerve in the performance of his duty. He becomes impatient and then gives vent to anger and begins to do unworthy things. He jumps from action to action, never remaining faithful to any. He who broods over results is like a man given to objects of senses. He is ever distracted. He says goodbye to all scruples. Everything is right in his estimation, and he therefore resorts to means fair and foul to attain his end. From the bitter experiences of the desire for fruit, the author of the Gita discovered the path of renunciation of fruit and put it before the world in a most convincing manner. The common belief is that religion is always opposed to material good. One cannot act religiously in mercantile and such other matters. There is no place for religion in such pursuits. Religion is only for attainment of salvation. We hear many worldly wise people say. In my opinion, the author of the Gita has dispelled this delusion. He has drawn no line of demarcation between salvation and worldly pursuits. On the contrary, he has shown that religion must rule even our worldly pursuits. I have felt that the Gita teaches us that what cannot be followed out in day-to-day practice cannot be called religion. Thus, according to the Gita, all acts that are incapable of being performed without attachment are taboo. This golden rule saves mankind from many a pitfall. According to this interpretation, murder, lying, dissoluteness, and the like must be regarded as sinful and therefore taboo. Man's life then becomes simple, and from that simpleness springs peace. Thinking along these lines, I have felt that in trying to enforce in one's life the central teachings of the Gita, one is bound to follow truth and ahimsa. When there is no desire for fruit, there is no temptation for untruth or ahimsa. Take any instance of untruth or violence, 
and it will be found that at its back was the desire to attain the cherished end. But it may be freely admitted that the Gita was not written to establish Ahimsa. It was an accepted and primary duty even before the Gita age. The Gita had to deliver the message of renunciation of fruit. This is clearly brought out as early as the second chapter. But if the Gita believed in Ahimsa, or it was included in desirelessness, why did the author take a warlike illustration? When the Gita was written, although people believed in Ahimsa, wars were not only not taboo, but nobody observed the contradiction between them and Ahimsa. In assessing the implications of renunciation of fruit, we are not required to probe the mind of the author of the Gita as to his limitations of Ahimsa and the like. Because a poet puts a particular truth before the world, it does not necessarily follow that he has known or worked out all its great consequences, or that having done so, he is always able to express them fully. In this, perhaps, lies the greatness of the poem and the poet. A poet's meaning is limitless. Like man, the meaning of great writing suffers evolution. On examining the history of languages, we notice that the meaning of important words has changed or expanded. This is true of the Gita. The author has himself extended the meaning of some of the current words. We are able to discover this even on superficial examination. It is possible that, in the age prior to that of the Gita, offering of animals as sacrifice was permissible, but there is not a trace of it in the sacrifice in the Gita sense. In the Gita, continuous concentration on God is the king of sacrifices. The third chapter seems to show that sacrifice chiefly means body labor for service. The third and fourth chapters read together will use other meanings for sacrifice, but never animal sacrifice. Similarly has the meaning of the word sannyasa undergone in the Gita a transformation. The sannyasa of the Gita will not tolerate complete cessation of all activity. The sannyasa of the Gita is all work and yet no work. Thus the author of the Gita, by extending meanings of words, has taught us to imitate it. Let it be granted that according to the letter of the Gita, it is possible to say that warfare is consistent with renunciation of fruit. But after 40 years unremitting endeavor fully to enforce the teachings of the Gita in my own life, I have in all humility felt that perfect renunciation is impossible without perfect observance of ahimsa in every shape and form. The Gita is not an aphoristic work. It is a great religious poem. The deeper you dive into it, the richer the meanings you get. It being meant for the people at large, there is a pleasing repetition. With every age, the important words will carry new and expanded meanings, but its central teaching will never vary. The teacher is at liberty to extract from this treasure any meaning he likes so as to enable him to enforce in his life the central teaching. Nor is the Gita a collection of do's and don'ts. What is lawful for one may be unlawful for another. What may be permissible at one time or in one place may not be so at another time and in another place. Desire for fruit is the only universal prohibition. Desirelessness is obligatory. The Gita has sung the praises of knowledge, but it is beyond the mere intellect. It is essentially addressed to the heart and capable of being understood by the heart. Therefore, the Gita is not for those who have no faith. The author makes Krishna say, Do not entrust this treasure to him who is without sacrifice, without devotion, without the desire for this teaching, and who denies me. On the other hand, those who will give this precious treasure to my devotees will, by the fact of this service, 
assuredly reach me. And those who, being free from malice, will with faith absorb this teaching, shall, having attained freedom, live where people of true merit go after death. Chapter 1 No knowledge is to be found without seeking, no tranquility without travail, no happiness except through tribulation. Every seeker has, at one time or another, to pass through a conflict of duties, a heart-churning. Dharitarashtra said, Tell me, O Sanjaya, what my sons and Pandus assembled on battle intent did on the field of Kuru, the field of duty? The human body is a battlefield where the eternal duel between right and wrong goes on. Therefore it is capable of being turned into a gateway to freedom. It is born in sin and becomes the seedbed of sin. Hence it is also called the field of Kuru. The Kuravas represent the forces of evil, the Pandavas the forces of good. Who is there that has not experienced the daily conflict within himself between the forces of evil and the forces of good? Sanjaya said, On seeing the Pandava's army drawn up in battle array, King Duryodhana approached Drona the preceptor and addressed him thus, Behold, O preceptor, this mighty army of the sons of Pandu, set in array by the son of Drupada, thy wise disciple. Here are brave bowmen, peers of Bhima and Arjuna in fighting, Yuyudana and Virata and the Maharatha Drupada, Drishtaki too, Chekitana, Valorous Kashiraja, Purujit, the Kunti Boja, and Shaibaya, chief among men, valiant Yudhamanyu, valorous Utamaujas, and the sons of Draupadi, each one of them a Raharatha. Acquaint thyself now, O best of Brahmanas, with the distinguished among us. I mention for thy information the names of the captains of my army. Thy noble self, Bhishma, Karna, and Kripa, victorious in battle. Ashvathaman, Vikarna, also Samadatta's son, there is many another hero known for his skill in wielding diverse weapons, pledged to lay down his life for my sake and all adepts in war. This our force commanded by Bhishma is all too inadequate, while theirs commanded by Bhima is quite adequate. Therefore, let each of you holding your appointed places at every entrance guard only Bhishma. At this, the heroic grandsire, the grand old man of the crews, gave a loud lion's roar and blew his conch to heart in Duryodhana. Thereupon, conches, drums, cymbals, and trumpets were sounded all at once. Terrific was the noise. Then Madhava and Pandava, standing in their great chariot, yoked with white steeds, blew their divine conches. Hirishikesha blew the Panchajanya and Dananjaya the Devadatta, while the wolf-bellied beam of dread deeds sounded his great conch Pandra. King Yudhishthira, Kunti's son, blew the Anatta Vijaya, and Nakula and Shahadeva, their conches, and Kashiraja, the great bowman, Shikhandi, the Maharatha, Dirishtad Yumna, Virata and Satyaki, the unconquerable, Drupada, Draupadi's son, the strong-armed son of Supadra, all these, O king, blew each his own conch. That terrifying tumult causing earth and heaven to resound rent the hearts of Dhritarashtra's sons. Then, O king, the eight-bannered Pandava, Seeing Dhritarashtra's sons, arrayed in flight of arrows, about to begin, took up his bow and spoke thus, Set my chariots between the two armies, O Achiyuta, that I may behold them drawn up on battle intent, and know whom I have to engage in this fearful combat, and that I may survey the fighters assembled here, anxious to fulfill in battle perverse Dhritarashtra's desire. 
Sanjaya said. Thus addressed by Gudakesha, O king, who Rishikesha set the unique chariot between the two armies in front of Hishma, Drona, and all the kings, and said, Behold, O Partha, the Kurus assembled yonder. Then did Partha see standing there sires, grandsires, preceptors, uncles, brothers, sons, grandsons, comrades, fathers-in-law, and friends in both armies. Beholding all these kinsmen ranged before him, Contea was overcome with great compassion, and spake thus in anguish. Arjuna said, As I look upon these kinsmen, O Krishna, assembled here, eager to fight, my limbs fail, my mouth is parched, a tremor shakes my frame, and my hair stands on end. My skin is on fire, I cannot keep my feet, and my mind reels. I have unhappy forebodings, and I see no good in slaying kinsmen in battle. I seek not victory, nor sovereign power, nor earthly joys. What good are sovereign power, worldly pleasures, and even life to us, O Govinda? Those for whom we would desire sovereign power, earthly joys, and delights are here arrayed in battle, having renounced life and wealth. Preceptors, sires, grandsires, sons, and even grandsons, fathers-in-law, brothers-in-law, and other kinsmen, these I would not kill. O Madhusudana, even though they slay me, not even for kingship of a three worlds, much less for an earthly kingdom. What pleasure can there be in slaying these sons of Dhritirashtra? O oh, Janandarna, sin only can be our lot, usurpers though they be. It does not therefore behove us to kill our kinsmen, these sons of Dhritirashtra. How may we be happy in killing our own kins? Even though these, their wits warped by greed, see not the guilt that lies in destroying the family, nor the sin of treachery to comrades, how can we, O Janandana, help recoiling from the sin, seeing clearly as we do the guilt that lies in such destruction? With the destruction of the family perish the eternal family virtues, and with the perishing of these virtues, unrighteousness seizes the whole family. When unrighteousness prevails, O Krishna, the women of the family become corrupt, and their corruption, O Varshneya, causes a confusion of Varnas. This confusion verily drags the family slayer, as well as the family, to hell. And for want of obsequial offerings and rites, their departed sires fall from blessedness. By the sins of these family slayers, resulting in confusion of varnas, the eternal tribe and family virtues are brought to naught. For we have it handed down to us, O Janandarna, that the men whose family virtues have been ruined are doomed to dwell in hell. Alas! What a heinous sin we are about to commit, in that from greed of the joy of sovereign power, we are prepared to slay our kith and kin. Happier far would it be for me if Dhritirashtra's sons, weapons in hand, should strike me down on the battlefield, unresisting and unarmed. Sanjaya said, Thus spake Arjuna on the field of battle, and dropping his bow and arrow sank down on his seat in the chariot, overwhelmed with anguish. Thus ends the first chapter, entitled Arjuna Vishada Yoga, in the converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna, on the science of yoga, as part of the knowledge of Brahman, in the Upanishad, called the Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 2 By reason of delusion, man takes wrong to be right. By reason of delusion was Arjuna led to make a difference between kinsmen and non-kinsmen. To demonstrate that this is a vain distinction, Lord Krishna distinguishes between body, not self, 
and Atman, self, and shows that whilst bodies are impermanent in several, Atman is permanent and one. Effort is within man's control, not the fruit thereof. All he has to do, therefore, is to decide his course of conduct or duty on each occasion and persevere in it, unconcerned about the result. Fulfillment of one's duty in the spirit of detachment or selflessness leads to freedom. Sanjaya said, To Arjuna thus overcome with compassion, sorrowing in his eyes obscured by flowing tears, Madhusudana spake these words. The Lord said, How is it that at this perilous moment this delusion, unworthy of the noble, leading neither to heaven nor to glory, has overtaken thee? Yield not to unmanliness, O Partha, it does not become thee. Shake off this miserable faint-heartedness and arise. Arjuna said, How shall I, with arrows, engage Bahishma and Adrona in battle? O Madhusudana, they who are worthy of reverence! It were better far to live on alms than to slay these venerable elders. Having slain them, I should but have blood-stained enjoyments. Nor do we know which is better for us, that we conquer them, or that they conquer us. For here stand before us Dhritirashtra's sons, having killed whom we should have no desire to live. My being is paralyzed by faint-heartedness. My mind discerns not duty. Hence I ask thee, tell me, I pray thee, in no uncertain language, wherein lies my good. I am thy disciple. Guide me. I see refuge in thee, for I can see nothing that can dispel the anguish that shrivels up my senses, even if I should win on earth uncontested sovereignty over a thriving kingdom or lordship over the gods. Sanjaya said, Thus spoke Gudakesha to Harishikesha Govinda, and with the words, I will not fight, became speechless. The Lord said, Thou mournest for them whom thou shouldest not mourn, and utterest vain words of wisdom. The wise mourn neither for the living nor for the dead. For never was I, nor thou, nor these kings, nor will any of us cease to be hereafter. As the embodied one has, in the present body, infancy, youth, and age, even so does he receive another body. The wise man is not deceived therein. O Contea, Contacts of the senses with their objects bring cold and heat, pleasure and pain. They come and go and are transient. Endure them, O Bharata. O noblest of men, the wise man who is not disturbed by these, who is unmoved by pleasure and pain, he is fitted for immortality. What is non-being is never known to have been, and what is being is never known not to have been. Of both these the secret has been seen by the seers of the truth. Know that to be imperishable whereby all this is pervaded, no one can destroy that immutable being. These bodies of the embodied, one who is eternal, imperishable, and immeasurable, are finite. Fight, therefore, of Bharata. He who thinks of this, Atman, as slayer, and who believes this to be slain, are both ignorant. This neither slays nor is ever slain. This is never born, nor ever dies, nor having been, will ever not be any more. Unborn, eternal, everlasting, ancient. This is not slain when the body is slain. He who knows this, O Partha, to be imperishable, eternal, unborn, and immutable, whom and how can that man slay or cause to be slain? As a man casts off worn-out garments and takes others that are new, 
Even so, the embodied one casts off worn-out bodies and passes on to others new. This no weapons wound, this no fire burns, this no waters wet, this no wind doth dry. Beyond all cutting, burning, wetting, and drying is this eternal, all-pervading, stable, immovable, everlasting, perceivable neither by the senses nor by the mind. This is called unchangeable, therefore knowing this, as such thou shouldest not grieve. And if thou deemest this to be always coming to birth and always dying, even then, O Mahabahu, thou shouldest not grieve. For certain is the death of the born, and certain is the birth of the dead. Therefore what is unavoidable, thou shouldest not regret. The state of all beings before birth is unmanifest. Their middle state manifest. Their state after death is again unmanifest. What occasion is there for lament, O Bharata? One looks upon this as a marvel. Another speaks of this as such. Yet having heard this, none truly knows this. This embodied one in the body of every being is ever beyond all harm. Thou shouldest not, therefore, grieve for anyone. Thus far Lord Krishna, by force of argument based on pure reason, has demonstrated that Atman is abiding while the physical body is fleeting, and has explained that if, under certain circumstances, the destruction of a physical body is deemed justifiable, it is delusion to imagine that the Kuravas should not be slain because they are kinsmen. Again, seeing thine own duty, thou shouldest not shrink from it. For there is no higher good for a Kshatriya than a righteous war. Such a fight, coming unsought, as a gateway to heaven thrown open, falls only to the lot of happy Kshatriyas, O Partha. But if thou wilt not fight this righteous fight, then failing in thy duty and losing thine honor, thou wilt incur sin. The world will forever recount the story of thy disgrace, and for a man of honor, Disgrace is worse than death. The Maharathas will think that fear made thee retire from battle, and thou wilt fall in the esteem of those very ones who have held thee high. Thine enemies will deride thy prowess and speak many unspeakable words about thee. Slain, thou shalt gain heaven. Victorious, thou shalt inherit the earth. Therefore arise, O Kentaya, determined to fight. Having declared the highest truth, viz. the immortality of the eternal Atman and the fleeting nature of the physical body, Krishna reminds Arjuna that Kshatriya may not flinch from a fight which comes unsought. He then shows how the highest truth and the performance of duty incidentally coincides with expediency. Next he proceeds to foreshadow the central teaching of the Gita in the following shloka. Hold alike pleasure and pain, gain and loss, victory and defeat, and gird up thy loins for the fight. So doing, thou shalt not incur sin. Thus have I set before thee the attitude of knowledge. Hear now the attitude of action. Resorting to this attitude, thou shalt cast off the bondage of action. Here no effort undertaken is lost. No disaster befalls. Even a little of this righteous course delivers one from great fear. The attitude in this matter springing as it does from fixed resolve is but one. But for those who have no fixed resolve, the attitudes are many-branched and unending. When the attitude ceases to be one and undivided, and becomes many and divided, it ceases to be one settled will, and is broken up into various wills of desires between which man is tossed about. 
the ignorant, reveling in the letter of the Vedas, declare that there is naught else. Carnally minded, holding heaven to be their goal, they utter swelling words, which promise birth as the fruit of action, and which dwell on the many, and varied rites to be performed for the sake of pleasure and power. Intent as they are on pleasure, their swelling words rob them of their wits, and they have no settled attitude which can be centered on the supreme goal. The Vedic ritual, as opposed to the doctrine of yoga laid down in the Gita, is alluded to here. The Vedic ritual lays countless ceremonies and rites with a view to attaining merit in heaven. These, divorced as they are from the essence of the Vedas and short-lived in their result, are worthless. The Vedas have as their domain the three gunas. Eschew them, O Arjuna. Free thyself from the pairs of opposites. Abide in eternal truth. Scorn to gain or guard anything. Remain the master of thy soul. To the extent that a well is of use when there is a flood of water on all sides, to the same extent are all the Vedas of use to an enlightened Ramana. Action alone is thy province, never the fruits thereof. Let not thy motive be the fruit of action, nor shouldest thou desire to avoid action. Act thou, O Dhananjaya, without attachment, steadfast in yoga, even-minded in success and failure. Even-mindedness is yoga. For action, O Dhananjaya, is far inferior to unattached action. Seek refuge in the attitude of detached action. Pitiable are those who make fruit their motive. Here in this world a man gifted with that attitude of detachment escapes the fruit of both good and evil deeds. Gird thyself up for yoga, therefore. Yoga is skill in action. For sages gifted with the attitude of detachment, who renounce the fruit of action, are released from the bondage of birth and attain to the state which is free from all ills. When thy understanding will have passed through the slough of delusion, then wilt thou be indifferent alike to what thou hast heard and wilt hear. When thy understanding, distracted by much hearing, will rest steadfast and unmoved in concentration, then wilt thou attain yoga. Arjuna said, What, O Keshava, is the mark of the man whose understanding is secure, whose mind is fixed in concentration? How does he talk? How sit? How move? The Lord said, When a man puts away, O Partha, all the cravings that arise in the mind, and finds comfort for himself only from Atman, then he is called a man of secure understanding. To find comfort for oneself from Atman means to look to the spirit within for spiritual comfort, not to outside objects which in their very nature must give pleasure as well as pain. Spiritual comfort or bliss must be distinguished from pleasure or happiness. The pleasure I may derive from the possession of wealth, for instance, is delusive. Real spiritual comfort or bliss can be attained only if I arise superior to every temptation, even though troubled by the pangs of poverty and hunger. Whose mind is untroubled in sorrows and longeth not for joys? Who is free from passion, fear, and wrath? He is called the ascetic of secure understanding. Who owns attachment nowhere? Who feels neither joy nor resentment, whether good or bad comes his way? That man's understanding is secure. And when, like the tortoise drawing in its limbs from every side, this man draws in his senses from their objects, his understanding is secure. When a man starves his senses, the objects of those senses disappear from him, but not the yearning for them. The yearning too departs when he beholds the Supreme. 
The shloka does not rule out fasting and other forms of self-restraint, but indicates their limitations. These restraints are needed for subduing the desire for sense objects, which, however, is rooted out only when one has a vision of the Supreme. The higher yearnings conquer all the lower yearnings. For in spite of the wise man's endeavor, the unruly senses distract his mind perforce. Holding all these in check, the yogi should sit intent on me. For he whose senses are under control is secure of understanding. This means that without devotion and the consequent grace of God, man's endeavor is in vain. In a man brooding on objects of the senses, attachment to them springs up. Attachment begets craving, and craving begets wrath. Craving cannot but lead to resentment, for it is unending and unsatisfied. Wrath breeds stupefaction. Stupefaction leads to loss of memory. Loss of memory ruins the reason, and the ruin of reason spells utter destruction. But the disciplined soul, moving among sense objects, with the senses weaned from likes and dislikes, and brought under the control of Atman, attains peace of mind. Peace of mind means the end to all ills, for the understanding of him whose mind is at peace stands secure. The undisciplined man has neither understanding nor devotion. For him who has no devotion, there is no peace. And for him who has no peace, whence happiness? For when his mind runs after any of the roaming senses, it sweeps away his understanding, as the wind a vessel upon the waters. Therefore, O Mahabahu, he whose senses are reined in on all sides from their objects is the man of secure understanding. When it is night for all other beings... The disciplined soul is awake. When all other beings are awake, it is night for the seeing ascetic. This verse indicates the divergent paths of the disciplined ascetic and the sensual man. Whereas the ascetic is dead to the things of the world and lives in God, the sensual man is alive only to the things of the world and dead to the things of the spirit. He in whom all longings subside even as the waters subside in the ocean which, though ever being filled by them, never overflows, that man finds peace, not he who cherishes longing. The man who sheds all longing and moves without concern, free from the sense of I and mine, he attains peace. This is the state, O Partha, of the man who rests in Brahman. Having attained to it, he is not deluded. He who abides in this state even at the hour of death, passes into oneness with Brahman. Thus ends the second chapter, entitled Sankhya Yoga in the Converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna, on the science of yoga as part of the knowledge of Brahman in the Upanishad called the Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 3 This chapter may be said to be the key to the essence of the Gita. It makes absolutely clear the spirit and nature of right action and shows how true knowledge must express itself in acts of selfless service. Arjuna said, If, O Janardana, thou holdest that the attitude of detachment is superior to action, then why, O Keshava, dost thou urge me to dreadful action? Thou dost seem to confuse my understanding with perplexing speech. Tell me, therefore, in no uncertain voice, that alone whereby I may attain salvation. Arjuna is sore perplexed, for whilst on the one hand he is rebuked for his faint-heartedness, 
On the other, he seems to be advised to refrain from action. But this in reality is not the case, as the following shlokas will show. The Lord said, I have spoken before, O sinless one, of two attitudes in this world, the sankhayas, that of janana yoga, that of karma yoga. Never does man enjoy freedom from action by not undertaking action, nor does he attain that freedom by mere renunciation of action. Freedom from action is freedom from bondage of action. This freedom is not to be gained by cessation of all activity, apart from the fact that this cessation is in the very nature of things impossible. How then may it be gained? The following shlokas will explain. For none ever remains inactive even for a moment, for all are compelled to action by the gunas inherent in prakriti. He who curbs the organs of action, but allows the mind to dwell on the sense objects, such a one, wholly deluded, is called a hypocrite. The man who curbs his tongue but mentally swears at another is a hypocrite. But that does not mean that free reign should be given to the organs of action so long as the mind cannot be brought under control. Self-imposed physical restraint is a condition precedent to mental restraint. Physical restraint should be entirely self-imposed and not superimposed from outside, e.g. by fear. The hypocrite who is held up to contempt here is not the humble aspirant after self-restraint. The shloka has reference to the man who curbs the body because he cannot help it while indulging the mind and who would indulge the body too if he possibly could. The next shloka puts the thing conversely. But he, O Arjuna, who keeping all the senses under control of the mind, engages the organs in karma yoga without attachment. That man excels. The mind and body should be made to accord well. Even with the mind kept in control, the body will be active in one way or another. But he whose mind is truly restrained will, for instance, close his ears to foul talk and open them only to listen to the praise of God or of good men. He will have no relish for sensual pleasures and will keep himself occupied with such activity as ennobles the soul. That is the path of action. Karma yoga is the yoga, means, which will deliver the self from the bondage of the body, and in it there is no room for self-indulgence. Do thou thy allotted task, for action is superior to inaction. With inaction, even life's normal course is not possible. This world of men suffers bondage from all action, save that which is done for the sake of sacrifice. To this end, O Contea, perform action without attachment. Action for the sake of sacrifice means acts of selfless service dedicated to God. Together with sacrifice did the Lord of beings create, mankind declaring, By this shall ye increase. May this be to you the giver of all your desires. With this may you cherish the gods, and may the gods cherish you. Thus cherishing one another, may you attain the highest good. Cherish with sacrifice, the gods will bestow on you the desired boons. He who enjoys their gifts without rending aught to them is verily a thief. Gods in Shlokas 11 and 12 must be taken to mean the whole creation of God. The service of all created beings is the service of the gods, and the same is sacrifice. The righteous men who eat the residue of the sacrifice are freed from all sin, but the wicked who cook for themselves eat sin. From food springs all life, from rain is born food. From sacrifice comes rain, and sacrifice is the result of action. 
know that action springs from Brahman, and Brahman from the imperishable. Hence, the all-pervading Brahman is ever firm-founded on sacrifice. He who does not follow the wheel thus set in motion here below, he living in sin, sating his senses, lives, O Partha, in vain. But the man who revels in Atman, who is content in Atman, and who is satisfied only with Atman, for him no action exists. He has no interest whatever in anything done, nor in anything not done, nor has he need to rely on anything for personal ends. Therefore, do thou ever perform without attachment the work that thou must do. For performing action without attachment, man attains the supreme. Whatever the best man does is also done by other men. What example he sets, the world follows. For me, O Partha, there is naught to do in the three worlds, nothing worth gaining that I have not gained, yet I am ever in action. An objection is sometimes raised that God, being impersonal, is not likely to perform any physical activity. At best, he may be supposed to act mentally. This is not correct. For the unceasing movement of the sun, the moon, the earth, etc., signifies God in action. Though God is without form and impersonal, he acts as though he had form and body. Hence, though he is ever in action, he is free from action, unaffected by action. What must be borne in mind is that, just as all nature's movements and processes are mechanical and yet guided by divine intelligence or will, even so man must reduce his daily conduct to mechanical regularity and precision, but he must do so intelligently. Man's merit lies in observing divine guidance at the back of these processes, and in intelligent imitation rather than in emphasizing the mechanical nature thereof and reducing himself to an automation. One has but to withdraw the self, withdraw attachment to the fruit from all action, and then not only mechanical precision, but security from all wear and terror will be ensured. Acting thus, man remains fresh until the end of his days. His body will perish in due course, but his soul will remain evergreen without a crease or a wrinkle. Indeed, for were I not unslumbering ever to remain in action, O Partha, men would follow my example in every way. If I were not to perform my task, these worlds would be ruined. I should be the same cause of chaos and of the end of all mankind. Just as with attachment, the unenlightened perform all actions, even so, but unattached should the enlightened man act with a desire for the welfare of humanity. The enlightened may not confuse the mind of the unenlightened who are attached to action. Rather must he perform all actions unattached, and thus encourage them to do likewise. All action is entirely done by the gunas of Prakriti. Man, deluded by the sense of I, thinks I am the doer. But he, O Mahabahu, who understands the truth of the various gunas and their various activities, knows that it is the gunas that operate on the gunas. He does not claim to be the doer. As breathing, winking, and similar processes are automatic and man claims no agency for them, he being conscious of the process only when disease or similar cause arrests them, in a similar matter all of his acclivities should be automatic, without his aggregating himself to the agency or responsibility thereof. A man of charity does not even know that he is doing charitable acts. It is in his nature to do so. He cannot help it. This detachment can only come from the tireless endeavor in God's grace. Deluded by the gunas of Prakriti, 
Men become attached to the activities of the gunas. He who knows the truth of things should not unhinge the slow-witted who have not the knowledge. Cast all thy acts on me, with thy mind fixed on the indwelling Atman, and without any thought of fruit or sense of mine, shake off thy fever and fight. He who knows the Atman inhabiting the body and realizes him to be part of the supreme Atman will dedicate everything to him. Even as a faithful servant acts as a mere shadow of his master and dedicates to him all that he does. For the master is the real doer, and the servant is but the instrument. Those who always act according to the rule I have here laid down, in faith, they too are released from the bondage of their actions. But those who cavil at the rule and refuse to conform to it are fools, dead to all knowledge. Know that they are lost. Even a man of knowledge acts according to his nature. All creatures follow their nature. What then will constraint avail? Self-restraint is the means of salvation. Man's energies should be bent towards achieving complete self-restraint until the end of his days. But if he does not succeed, neither will constraint help him. The shloka does not rule out restraint, but explains that nature prevails. He who justifies himself saying, I cannot do this, it is not in my nature, misreads the shloka. True, we do not know our nature, but habit is not nature. Progress, not decline, ascent, not descent, is the nature of the soul, and therefore every threatened decline or descent ought to be resisted. The next verse makes this abundantly clear. Each sense has its settled likes and dislikes towards its objects. Man should not come under the sway of these for they are his besetters. Hearing, for instance, is the object of the ears which may be inclined to hear something and disinclined to hear something else. Man may not allow himself to be swayed by these likes and dislikes, but must decide for himself what is conductive to his growth, his ultimate end being to reach the state beyond happiness and misery. Better one's own duty, bereft of merit, than another's well-performed. Better is death, in the discharge of one's duty. Another's duty is fraught with danger. One man's duty may be to serve the community by working as a sweeper. Another's may be to work as an accountant. An accountant's work may be more inviting, but that need not draw the sweeper away from his work. Should he allow himself to be drawn away, he would himself be lost and put the community into danger. Before God, the work of man will be judged by the spirit in which it is done, not by the nature of the work which makes no difference whatsoever. Whoever acts in a spirit of dedication fits himself for salvation. Arjuna said, Then what impels man to sin, O Varshneya, even against his will, as though by force compelled? The Lord said, It is lust, it is wrath, born of the guna. It is the arch-devourer, the arch-sinner. Know this to be man's enemy here. A fire is obscured by smoke, a mirror by dirt, and the embryo by the amnion. So is knowledge obscured by this. Knowledge is obscured, Onkantaya, by the eternal enemy of the wise man in the form of lust, the insatiable fire. The senses, the mind, and the reason are said to be its great seat. By means of these, it obscures knowledge and stupefies man. When lust seizes the senses, the mind is corrupted, discrimination is obscured and reason ruined. Therefore, O Bharat Arshaba, 
Bridle thou first the senses, and then rid thyself of this sinner, the destroyer of knowledge and discrimination. Subtle, they say, are the senses. Subtler than the senses is the mind. Subtler than the mind is the reason. But subtler even than the reason is he. Thus, realizing him to be subtler than the reason, and controlling the self by the self, destroy, O Mahabahu, this enemy, lust so hard to overcome. When man realizes him, his mind will be under his control, not swayed by the senses. And when the mind is conquered, what power has lust? It indeed is a subtle enemy, but when the senses, the mind, and the reason are under the control of the subtlemost self, lust is extinguished. Thus ends the third chapter, entitled Karma Yoga, in the converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna on the science of yoga as part of the knowledge of Brahman in the Upanishad called the Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 4 This chapter further explains the subject matter of the third and describes the various kinds of sacrifice. The Lord said, I expounded this imperishable yoga to Vivasvat. Vivasvat communicated it to Manu and Manu to Ikshvaku. Thus, handed down in succession, the royal sages learnt it. With long lapse of time, it dwindled away in this world, O Parantapa. The same ancient yoga have I expounded to thee today, for thou art my devotee and my friend, and this is the supreme mystery. Arjuna said, Later was thy birth, my lord, earlier that of Vivisvat. How then am I to understand that thou didst expound it in the beginning? The Lord said, Many births have we passed through, O Arjuna, both thou and I. I know them all. Thou knowest them not, O Parantapa. Though unborn and inexhaustible in my essence, though Lord of all beings, yet assuming control over my nature, I come into being by my mysterious power. For whenever right declines and wrong prevails, then, O Bharata, I come to birth to save the righteous, to destroy the wicked, and to re-establish right, I am born from age to age. Here is comfort for the faithful, an affirmation of the truth that right ever prevails. An eternal conflict between right and wrong goes on. Sometimes the latter seems to get the upper hand, but it is right which ultimately prevails. The good are never destroyed, for right, which is truth, cannot perish. The wicked are destroyed because wrong has no independent existence. Knowing this, let man cease to aggregate himself authorship and eschew untruth, violence, and evil. Unscrutable providence, the unique power of the Lord, is ever at work. This, in fact, is avatara, incarnation. Strictly speaking, there can be no birth for God. He who knows the secret of this, my divine birth and action, is not born again after leaving the body. He comes to me, O Arjuna. For when a man is secure in the faith that right always prevails, he never swerves therefrom, pursuing to the bitterest end and against serious odds, as no part of the effort proceeds from his ego, but all is dedicated to him. Being ever one with him, he is released from birth to death. Freed from passion, fear, and wrath, filled full with me, relying on me, and refined by the fiery ordeal of knowledge, many have become one with me. In whatever way men resort to me, even so do I render to them. In every way, O Partha, the path men follow is mine. 
That is, the whole world is under his ordinance. No one may break God's law with impunity. As we sow, so shall we reap. This law operates inexorably without fear or favor. Those who desire their actions to bear fruit worship the gods here. For in this world of men, the fruit of action is quickly obtainable. Gods, as indicated before, must not be taken to mean the heavenly beings of tradition, but whatever reflects the divine. In that sense, man is also a god. Steam, electricity, and the other great forces of nature are all gods. Propitiation of these forces quickly bears fruit, as we well know. But it is short-lived. It fails to bring comfort to the soul, and it certainly does not take one even a short step toward salvation. The order of the four Varnas was created by me, according to the different gunas and karma of each. Yet know that though, therefore, author thereof, being changeless, I am not the author. Actions do not affect me, nor am I concerned with the fruits thereof. He who recognizes me as such is not bound by actions. For man has thus before him the supreme example of one who, though in action, is not the doer thereof. And when we are but instruments in his hands, where then is the room for aggregating responsibility for action? Knowing this did men of old, desirous of freedom, perform action. Do thou then, just as they did, the men of old in days gone by? What is action? What is inaction? Here even the wise are perplexed. I will then expound to thee that action knowing, which thou shalt be saved from evil. For it is meet to know the meaning of action, of forbidden action, as also inaction. Impenetrable is the secret of action. Who sees action in action, and action in inaction? He is enlightened among men. He is a yogi. He has done all he need do. The action of him who, though ever active, does not claim to be the doer, is inaction. And the inaction of him who, though outwardly avoiding action, is always building castles in his own mind, is action. The enlightened man who has grasped the secret of action knows that no action proceeds from him, and hence he selflessly remains absorbed in action. He is the true yogi. The man who acts self-fully misses the secret of action and cannot distinguish between right and wrong. The soul's natural progress is towards selflessness and purity, and one might, therefore, say that the man who strays from the path of purity strays from selflessness. All actions of the selfless man are naturally pure. He whose every undertaking is free from desire and selfish purpose, and he who has burnt all his actions in the fire of knowledge, such a one the wise call a pandita, he who has renounced attachment to the fruit of action, who is ever content and free from all dependence, he, though immersed in action, yet acts not. That is, his action does not bind him. Expecting not, holding his mind and body in check, putting away every possession, and going through action only in the body, he incurs no stain. The purest act, if tainted by self, binds. But when it is done in a spirit of dedication, it ceases to bind. When self has completely subsided, it is only the body that works. For instance, in the case of a man who is asleep, his body alone is working. A prisoner doing his prison tasks has surrendered his body to the prison authorities, 
and only his body therefore works. Similarly, he who has voluntarily made himself God's prisoner does nothing himself. His body mechanically acts. The doer is God, not he. He has reduced himself to nothingness. Content with whatever chance may bring, rid of the pairs of opposites, free from ill will, even-minded in success and failure, he is not bound, though he acts. Of the free soul, who has shred all attachment, whose mind is firmly grounded in knowledge, who acts only for sacrifice, all karmas extinguish. The offering of sacrifice is Brahman. The oblation is Brahman. It is offered by Brahman in the fire that is Brahman. Thus, he whose mind is fixed on acts dedicated to Brahman must needs pass on to Brahman. Some yogins perform sacrifice in the form of worship of the gods. Others offer sacrifice of sacrifice itself in the fire that is Brahman. Some offer as sacrifice the sense of hearing and the other senses in the fires of restraint. Others sacrifice sound and the other objects of sense in the fires of the senses. The restraint of the senses, hearing and others, is one thing, and directing them only to legitimate objects, in other words, listening to hymns in praise of God, is another, although ultimately both amount to the same thing. Others again sacrifice all the activities of the senses and of the vital energy in the yogic fire of self-control, kindled by knowledge. That is to say, they lose themselves in the contemplation of the Supreme. Some sacrifice with material gifts, with austerities, with yoga, some with the acquiring and some with the imparting of knowledge. All these are sacrifices of stern vows and serious endeavor. Others absorbed in the practices of the control of the vital energy sacrifice the outward and the inward, and the inward and the outward, or check the flow of both the inward and the outward vital airs. The reference here is to the three kinds of practices of the control of vital energy, paraka, rachaka, and kumbhaka. Yet others, abstemious in food, sacrifice one form of vital energy in another. All of these know what sacrifice is and purge themselves of all impurities by sacrifice. Those who partake of the residue of sacrifice, called amrita, ambrosia, attain to everlasting Brahman. Even this world is not for a non-sacrificer. How then the next? Even so, various sacrifices have been described in the Vedas. Know them all to proceed from action. Knowing this, thou shalt be released. Action here means mental, physical, and spiritual action. No sacrifice is possible without this triple action and no salvation without sacrifice. To know this and to put this knowledge into practice is to know the secret of sacrifice. In fine, unless man uses all his physical, mental, and spiritual gifts in the service of mankind, he is a thief unfit for freedom. He who uses his intellect only and spares his body is not a full sacrificer. Unless the mind and the body and the soul are made to work in unison, they cannot be adequately used for the service of mankind. Physical, mental, and spiritual purity is essential for the harmonious working. Therefore, man should concentrate on developing, purifying, and turning to the best of all his faculties. Knowledge sacrifice is better, O Parantapa, than material sacrifice, 
for all action, which does not bind, finds its consummation in knowledge. Who does not know that works of charity performed without knowledge often result in great harm? Unless every act, however noble its motive, is informed with knowledge, it lacks perfection. Hence the complete fulfillment of all action is in knowledge. The masters of knowledge, who have seen the truth, will impart to thee this knowledge. Learn it through humble homage and service, and by repeated questioning. The three conditions of knowledge, homage, repeated questioning, and service, deserve to be carefully borne in mind in this age. Homage or obeisance means humility and service is a necessary accompaniment, else it would be mock homage. Repeated questioning is equally essential, for without a keen spirit of inquiry, there is no knowledge. All this presupposes devotion to and faith in the person approached. There can be no humility, much less service, without faith. When thou hast gained this knowledge, O Pandava, thou shalt not again fall into such error. By virtue of it, thou shalt see all beings without exception in thyself, and thus in me. The adage, Yata Pinde Tata Brahman, as with the self, so with the universe, means the same thing. He who has attained self-realization sees no difference between himself and others. Even though thou be the most sinful of sinners, thou shalt cross the ocean of sin by the boat of knowledge. As a blazing fire turns its fuel to ashes, O Arjuna, even so the fire of knowledge turns all actions to ashes. There is nothing in this world so purifying as knowledge. He who is perfected by yoga finds it in himself in the fullness of time. It is the man of faith who gains knowledge, the man who is intent on it, and who has mastery over his senses. Having gained knowledge, he comes ere long to the supreme peace. But the man of doubt, without knowledge and without faith, is lost. For him who is given to doubt, there is neither this world, nor that beyond, nor happiness. He who has renounced all action by means of yoga, who has severed all doubt by means of knowledge, him self-possessed, no actions bind. Therefore, with the sword of self-realization, sever thou this doubt, bread of ignorance, which has crept into thy heart. Betake thyself to yoga and arise, O Bharata. Thus ends the fourth chapter, entitled Janana Karma Sannyasa Yoga, in the converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna on the science of yoga, as part of the knowledge of Brahman in the Upanishad called the Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 5 This chapter is devoted to showing that renunciation of action as such is impossible without the discipline of selfless action and that both are ultimately one. Arjuna said, Thou laudest renunciation of actions, O Krishna, whilst at the same time thou laudest performance of action. Tell me for a certainty, which is the better? The Lord said, Renunciation and performance of action both lead to salvation. But of the two, karma yoga, performance, is better than sannyasa, renunciation. Him one should know as ever renouncing, who has no dislikes and likes. For he who is free from the pairs of opposites is easily released from bondage. That is, not renunciation of action, but of attachment to the pairs determines true renunciation. 
A man who is always in action may be a good sannyasa, renouncer, and another who may be doing no work may well be a hypocrite. It is the ignorant who speak of sankhya and yoga as different. Not so those who have knowledge. He who is rightly established even in one wins to the fruit of both. The yogi engrossed in sankhya, knowledge, lives even in thought for the good of the world and attains the fruit of karma yoga by the sheer power of his thought. The karma yogi, ever engrossed in unattached action, naturally enjoys the peace of janana yogi. The goal that the sankhyas attain is also reached by the yogins. He sees truly who sees both sankhya and yoga as one. But renunciation is hard to attain except by yoga. The ascetic equipped with yoga attains brahman ere long. The yogi who has seen the truth knows that it is not he that acts while seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, walking, sleeping, or breathing. Talking, letting go, holding fast, opening or closing the eyes, in the conviction, the senses that are moving in their respective spheres. So long as self endures, this detachment cannot be achieved. A sensual man, therefore, may not shelter himself under the pretense that it is not he but his senses that are acting. Such a mischievous interpretation betrays a gross ignorance of the Gita and right conduct. The next shloka makes this clear. He who dedicates his actions to Brahman and performs them without attachment is not smeared by sin as the lotus leaf by water. Only with the body, mind, and intellect, and also with the senses, do the yogins perform action without attachment for the sake of self-purification. A man of yoga obtains everlasting peace by abandoning the fruit of action. The man ignorant of yoga, selfishly attached to fruit, remains bound. Renouncing with the mind all actions, the dweller in the body, who is master of himself, rests happily in his city of nine gates, neither doing nor getting anything done. The principal gates of the body are the two eyes, the two nostrils, the two ears, the mouth, and the two organs of excretion. Though really speaking, the countless pores of the skin are no less gates. If the gatekeeper always remains on the alert and performs his task, letting in or out only the objects that deserve ingress or egress, then of him it can be truly said that he has no part in the ingress or egress, but that he is a passive witness. He thus does nothing nor gets anything done. The Lord creates neither agency nor action for the world. Neither does he connect action with its fruit. It is nature that is at work. God is no doer. The inexorable law of karma prevails. In the very fulfillment of the law, giving everyone his deserts, making everyone reap what he sows, lies God's abounding mercy and justice. In undiluted justice is mercy. Mercy which is inconsistent with justice is not mercy but its opposite. But man is not a judge knowing past, present, and future. So for him the law is reversed and mercy or forgiveness is the purest justice. Being himself ever liable to be judged, he must accord to others what he would accord to himself, that is, forgiveness. Only by cultivating the spirit of forgiveness can he reach the state of a yogi, whom no action binds, the man of even-mindedness, the man skilled in action. The Lord does not take upon himself anyone's vice or virtue. It is ignorance that veils knowledge and deludes all creatures. The delusion lies in man aggregating to himself the authorship of action and the attributing to God the consequences thereof, 
punishment or reward as the case may be. But to them whose ignorance is destroyed by the knowledge of Atman, this their knowledge, like the sun, reveals the supreme. Those whose intellect is suffused with that, whose self has become one with that, who abide in that, and whose end and aim is that, wipe out their sins with knowledge, and go whence there is no return. The men of self-realization look with an equal eye on a brahmana possessed of learning and humility, a cow, an elephant, a dog, and even a dog-eater. That is to say, they serve every one of them alike according to the needs of each. Treating a brahmana and a shwapaka, or dog-eater, alike means that the wise man will suck the poison off a snake-bitten shwapaka with as much eagerness and readiness as he would from a snake-bitten brahmana. In this very body, they have conquered the round of birth and death, whose mind is anchored in sameness. For perfect Brahman is same to all, therefore in Brahman they rest. As a man thinks, so he becomes, and therefore those whose minds are bent on being the same to all achieve that sameness and become one with Brahman. He whose understanding is secure, who is undiluted, who knows Brahman, and who rests in Brahman, will neither be glad to get what is pleasant, nor sad to get what is unpleasant. He who has detached himself from contacts without finds bliss in Atman. Having achieved union with Brahman, he enjoys eternal bliss. He who has weaned himself from the outward object to the inner Atman is fitted for union with Brahman in the highest bliss. To withdraw oneself from contacts without and to bask in the sunshine of union with Brahman are two aspects of the same state, two sides of the same coin. For the joys derived from sense contacts are nothing but minds of misery. They have beginning and end. The wise man does not revel therein. The man who is able even here on earth, air is released from the body to hold out against the flood tide of lust and wrath. He is a yogi. He is happy. As a corpse has no likes and dislikes, no sensibility to pleasure and pain, even so he who, though alive, is dead to these. He truly lives. He is truly happy. He who finds happiness only within, rest only within, light only within, that yogi, having become one with nature, attains to oneness with Brahman. They win oneness with Brahman, the seers whose sins are wiped out, whose doubts are resolved, who have mastered themselves, and who are engrossed in the welfare of all beings. Rid of lust and wrath, masters of themselves, the ascetics who have realized Atman find oneness with Brahman everywhere around them. The ascetic is ever free, who, having shut out the outward sense context, sits with his gaze fixed between the brows, outward and inward, breathing in the nostrils made equal, his senses, mind, and reason held in check, rid of longing, fear, and wrath, and intent on freedom. These shlokas refer to some of the yogic practices laid down in the Yoga Sutras. A word of caution is necessary regarding these practices. They serve for the yogin the same purpose as athletics and gymnastics do for the bogan, who pursues worldly pleasures. His physical exercises help the latter to keep his senses of enjoyment in full vigor. 
The yogic practices help the yogin to keep his body in condition and his senses in subjection. Men versed in these practices are rare these days, and few of them turn them to good account. He who has achieved the preliminary stage on the path to self-discipline, he who has a passion for freedom, and who having rid himself of the pairs of opposites has conquered fear, would do well to go in for these practices, which will surely help him. It is such a disciplined man alone who can, through these practices, render his body a holy temple of God. Purity both of the mind and body is a sin qua non, without which these processes are likely, in the first instance, to lead a man astray and then drive him deeper into the slow of delusion. That this has been the result in some cases many know from actual experience. That is why that prince of yogins, Patanjali, gave the first place to yamas, cardinal vows, aniyamas, casual vows, and held as eligible for yogic practices only those who have gone through the preliminary discipline. The five cardinal vows are Nonviolence, truth, non-stealing, celibacy, non-possession. The five casual vows are bodily purity, contentment, the study of the scriptures, austerity, and meditation of God. Knowing me as the acceptor of sacrifice and austerity, the great lord of all the worlds, the friend of all creation, the yogi attains to peace. Almighty God is doer and non-doer, enjoyer and non-enjoyer both. He is indescribably beyond the power of human speech. Man somehow strives to have a glimpse of him, and in doing so invests him with diverse and even contradictory attributes. Thus ends the fifth chapter, entitled Sannyasa Yoga, in the converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna, on the science of yoga, as part of the knowledge of Brahman, in the Upanishad, called the Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 6 This chapter deals with some of the means of the accomplishment of yoga, or the discipline of the mind and its activities. The Lord said, He who performs all obligatory action, without depending on the fruit thereof, is a sannyasin and a yogin, not the man who neglects the sacrificial fire, nor he who neglects action. Fire here may be taken to mean all possible instruments of action. Fire was needed when sacrifices used to be performed with its help. Assuming that spinning were a means of universal service in this age, a man by neglecting the spinning wheel would not become a sannyasi. What is called sannyasa? Know thou to be yoga. For none can become a yogin who has not renounced selfish purpose. For the man who seeks to scale the heights of yoga, action is said to be the means. For the same man, when he has scaled those heights, repose is said to be the means. He who has purged himself of all impurities and who has achieved even-mindedness will easily achieve self-realization. But this does not mean that he who has scaled the heights of yoga will disdain the work for the guidance of the world. On the contrary, that work will be to him not only the breath of his nostrils, but also as natural to him as breathing. He will do so by the sheer force of will. When a man is not attached either to the objects of sense or to actions and sheds all selfish purpose, then he is said to have scaled the heights of yoga. By one's self should one raise oneself and not allow oneself to fall. For Atman alone is the friend of self, and self alone is self's foe. 
his self alone is friend, who has conquered himself by his self. But to him, who has not conquered himself, and is thus inimical to himself, even his self behaves as foe. Of him who has conquered himself, and who rests in perfect calm, the self is completely composed, in cold and heat, in pleasure and pain, in honor and dishonor. The yogin who is filled with the contentment of wisdom and discriminative knowledge, who is firm as a rock, who has mastered his senses, and to whom a clod of earth, a stone, and gold are the same, is possessed of yoga. He excels who regards alike the boon companion, the friend, the enemy, the stranger, the mediator, the alien and the ally, as also the saint and the sinner. Let the yogi constantly apply his thought to Atman, remaining alone in a scheduled place, his mind and body in control, rid of desires and possessions, fixing for himself in a pure spot, a firm seat, neither too high nor yet too low, covered with kusha grass, thereon a deerskin, and thereon a cloth. Sitting on that seat, with mind concentrated, the functions of thought and sense of control, he should set himself to the practice of yoga for the sake of self-purification. Keeping himself steady, holding the trunk, the neck, and the head in a straight line and motionless, fixing his eye on the tip of his nose and looking not around. Tranquil in spirit, free from fear, holding his mind in control, the yogi should sit with all his thoughts on me, absorbed in me. The yogi who ever thus with mind controlled unites himself to Atman wins the peace which culminates in nirvana, the peace that is in me. Yoga is not for him who eats too much, nor for him who fasts too much, neither for him who sleeps too much, nor yet for him who is too wakeful. To him who is disciplined in food and recreation, in effort in all activities, and in sleep and waking, yoga, discipline, becomes a relief from all ills. When one's thought, completely controlled, rests steadily on only Atman, when one is free from longing, for all objects of desire, then one is called a yogin. As a taper in a windless spot flickers not, even so is a yogin, with his thought controlled, seeking to unite himself with Atman. Where thought curbed by the practice of yoga completely ceases, where a man sits content within himself, Atman having seen Atman, when he experiences that endless bliss beyond the senses, which can be grasped by reason alone, wherein established he swerves not from the truth, where he holds no other gain greater than that which he has gained, and where securely seated he is not shaken by any calamity, however great. That state should be known as yoga, union with the supreme, the disunion from all union with pain. This yoga must one practice with firm resolve and unwearying zeal. Shaking oneself completely free from longings, born of selfish purpose, reining in the whole host of senses, from all sides, with the mind itself, with reason held securely by the will, he should gradually attain calm, and with the mind established in Atman, think of nothing.
wherever the fickle and unsteady mind wanders, thence should it be reigned and brought under the sole sway of Atman. The yogin, cleansed of all stain, unites himself ever thus to Atman, easily enjoys the endless bliss of contact with Brahman. The man equipped with yoga looks on all with an impartial eye, seeing Atman in all beings, and all beings in Atman. He who sees me everywhere and everything in me never vanishes from me, nor I from him. The yogin, who anchored in unity, worships me abiding in all beings, lives and moves in me, no matter how he lives and moves. So long as self subsists, the supreme self is absent. When self is extinguished, the supreme self is seen everywhere. He, who by likening himself with others, senses pleasure and pain equally for all as for himself, is deemed to be the highest yogi. Arjuna said, I do not see, O Madhusudana, how this yoga, based on the equal-mindedness that thou hast expounded to me, can steadily endure. For fickle is the mind, O Krishna, unruly, overpowering, and stubborn. To curb it is, I think, as hard as to curb the wind. The Lord said, Undoubtedly, the mind is fickle and hard to curb. Yet, O Konteya, it can be held in check by constant practice and dispassion. Without self-restraint, yoga I hold is difficult to attain, but the self-governed soul can attain it by proper means if he strives for it. Arjuna said, If one possessed of faith but slack of effort, because of his mind straying from yoga, reach not perfection in yoga, what end does he come to, O Krishna? Without a foothold and floundering in the path to Brahman, fallen from both, is he indeed not lost? This my doubt, O Krishna, do thou dispel utterly, for there is to be found none other than thou to banish this doubt. The Lord said, Neither in this world nor in the next can there be ruin for him, O Partha. No well-doer, O loved one, meets with a sad end. Fallen from yoga, a man attains the world of righteous souls, and having dwelt there for numberless years, is then born in a house of pure and gentle blood. Or... He may even be born into a family of yogins, though such birth as this is all too rare in this world. There, O Kurunandana, he discovers the intellectual stage he had reached in previous birth, and thence he stretches forward again towards perfection. By virtue of that previous practice he is born on, whether he will it or not, even he with a desire to know yoga passes beyond the Vedic ritual. But the yogi who perseveres cleansed of sin, perfected through many births, reaches the highest state. The yogin is deemed higher than the man of austerities. He is deemed also higher than the man of knowledge. Higher is he than the man engrossed in ritual. Therefore be thou a yogin, O Arjuna. And among all yogins, he who worships me with faith, his inmost self all wrapped in me, is deemed by me to be the best yogin. Thus ends the sixth chapter, entitled Dhyana Yoga, in the converse of Lord Krishna and Arjuna, on the science of yoga, in the Upanishad called the Bhagavad Gita.